0: From the newsroom of the Washington Post.
1: Hello, hey, Here's Sindhu from the Washington Post.
0: Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori, our over at the Post. I'm. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, January 31st. Today, a victim of sexual assault fights back. The complicated relationship between Donald Trump and Michael Bloomberg and what the polar vortex feels like. Back in the summer of 2017, something happened that got a little attention in the local news here in Washington, D.C. This woman started showing up at bars and restaurants in this trendy part of town, and she started passing out flyers to the people who worked there. The flyers were printed with color photos of a guy in a chef's hat and an apron, a guy who was identified as Hiro Cruz. And under the photos, the caption said, This man has assaulted six women in D.C. The flyers had other details of criminal charges against him that turned out to be legit, including screenshots of a court docket. Still, at the time, it wasn't clear who was passing around these flyers Or why?
2: There was some buzz that was generated about these flyers, where they were coming from, who had possibly posted them. It was kind of a mystery at the time.
0: Amy Britton is an investigative reporter for The Post. And she said that these flyers were so interesting because Jairo Cruz was a successful chef in D.C. He worked at one of the city's best-known restaurants, a French bistro on 14th Street called Le Diplomate. The Obamas once ate there with the president of France. Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner go there.
2: Le Diplomat is certainly a big name restaurant in town. And I think the fact that he worked at Le Diplomat certainly piqued the curiosity of people who may have encountered these flyers.
0: That was almost two years ago, back before the Me Too movement made national headlines, before powerful men were outed as sexual assaulters and harassers. And the momentum of the Me Too movement is partially why the woman behind the flyers ultimately reached out to Amy. She was finally ready to share her story about why she went to such great lengths to publicly name this guy. You should know that her story involves graphic depictions of sexual assault.
3: Right now we're heading into Mortal Beloved, the salon where I work.
2: Lauren Clark is a 33-year-old hairstylist who works in Washington, D.C. She works at a very popular salon along the 14th Street Corridor. She spends most of her days seeing clients, talking to clients, cutting hair. Yeah. She always wanted to be a hairstylist. It was her dream from childhood. She would style the hair of her sister. She would style the hair of classmates for homecoming.
3: Any good ones?
2: (laughs) As a child, she was pretty outspoken. She's always kind of been someone to stand up and speak out for what she thinks is right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She moved to the D.C. area to go to hair school in Virginia and then uh, started working at the salon soon after.
3: So we're... In Glover Park, this safe, cute, little neighborhood. And uh, this is where it happened.
2: In April of 2013, Lauren was wrapping up after a long day at work at the salon. Uh, she went home to her neighborhood. And she changed into running clothes. And she took off for a late-night run like she had done many times. And along the way home, she suddenly saw a man along the sidewalk. And I just got
3: this like feeling like across the street. And I was like, that's crazy. Like... He's just a normal person he's going home to. And I kept walking, and then I passed by him, and I got, like, a couple steps past him.
2: And suddenly this man came up from behind, and...
3: I just feel his hand, like, over my mouth and his other hand in between my legs and his body against my back. And he just slammed me into the ground.
2: He tackled her, and he grabbed her.
3: My knees hit the ground. My elbows hit the ground. I kind of hit his face and, like... Scratched it, and it ripped his glasses off. That's when he punched me. He punched me in the nose, and I just remember my head hitting the sidewalk.
2: And they had this struggle on the ground as he was groping her. I just was so mad.
3: It went from like escape to like rage, and I then fought back, and I went to swing at him, and it. At that point, like he like got up, um, and then he was
2: taking off.
0: When Clark's attacker ran away, he also stole her phone. But someone passing by helped her flag down police.
2: And shortly after, she actually identified him walking near the scene of the crime. He was
0: just right around there? He was just walking around? He was
2: just right, right nearby where it had happened.
0: Everything happened really quickly from there. Police caught the man, and they even linked him to an attack against another woman that happened earlier that night. Jairo Cruz had fresh scratches on his face, and Clark's fingernails were swabbed for DNA. Cruz promptly confessed, and in court, he later admitted to assaulting four other women. Afterwards, Clark was assured by a detective on her case that, with all that evidence, Cruz would be facing a felony charge, and he would be going to jail for a very, very long time. As a victim, Clark was unusually vigilant. The next day, she went to the police station to get a copy of the police report. She attended a sentencing hearing for Cruz, where she gave a statement about how much the assault had traumatized her. But Cruz was never charged with a felony. He was charged with misdemeanors. Misdemeanor sexual abuse for the attacks on Clark and the other woman that night, misdemeanor assault for the punch, and second-degree theft for taking Clark's cell phone. Two of those charges were later dropped as part of the plea deal. All of that meant that Cruz was not eligible for inclusion in the sex offender registry.
3: I found out that all of the charges were misdemeanors. It was just, it just felt cheap. (laughs) What happened to me felt so much worse than that. A misdemeanor sounds like something like, oh, like, don't do that again, you know? And like, it just was so much bigger for me than, I guess, what I think... A misdemeanor is.
0: Ultimately, Cruz was sentenced to 80 days in a halfway house, five years supervised probation, and 10 days in jail.
2: But not even 10 days straight. 10 days served in two-day stints in order to cater to his work schedule.
0: 10 days of jail time for attacking two women at least, and and he confessed to attacking four others?
2: Yes. (laughs)
0: A few years went by and Clark says that she tried to move on.
2: Eventually she turns to therapy. She's gripped by these panic attacks that have really started to disrupt her work life, her social life. But she tries to channel this anger and disappointment. She turns to advocacy work. She organizes a march for other sexual assault victims in D.C. So she does the best that she can.
0: But it was hard to pretend like things were back to normal, especially because after the attack, Cruz skyrocketed to prominence in D.C.'s restaurant scene. He hopped around different restaurants and he eventually ended up at Le Diplomat on 14th Street, just blocks away from Clark's salon. And Clark knew all of this because she'd been keeping tabs on her attacker googling him regularly
2: she had just eaten there a couple of months before with a friend and she remembered exactly what she ordered and just thinking about the very real possibility that the hands of her attacker could have actually prepared this meal it was nauseating for her to think about the fact that she could have eaten the food that he prepared
0: And then, in 2017, Clark finds out about a serious lapse in her case.
2: She found this out by looking at the D.C. Superior Court website, which she had been going to for several years now. She sees a very curious notation in the court file that there had been a hearing in D.C. Superior Court in her case, and no one told her, which is actually a blatant violation of the law.
0: (laughs) When Cruz was sentenced. He was supposed to be on supervised probation for five years. But at that hearing back in 2017, the one that Clark was never told about, the judge determined that the chef had been on good behavior and that he didn't need to be monitored any longer. So Cruz was moved to unsupervised probation. But here's the thing. During that hearing, it comes out that over the previous four years, Cruz had barely even been monitored to begin with.
2: It is revealed that a federal agency that was responsible for supervising Cruz over his five-year probation has made a big mistake. So for the past... Four years at this point of his probation, he's been coming in for urine checks and office visits rather than getting any sort of meaningful rehabilitation that would have been tailored to actually working with him on what caused him to commit these attacks and hopefully to prevent it in the future.
0: That's when Clark decides that she has to take matters into her own hands to make sure that this guy can't hurt somebody else. She files a motion for a new hearing to get him back in court. And she also does something else, the flyers.
2: It's kind of an old school decision in some ways, you know, in the age of social media to actually print out paper flyers. But she did that and she walked up and down 14th Street and she passed them out to managers, uh, bars, of restaurants. She felt morally compelled to warn her community about Cruz and about what he had done. I knew that I wanted to feel safe, and I just, I didn't know
3: what else to do with it, I guess. I I didn't want to do anything, like, harmful or illegal. That seemed like my only option. I couldn't, there was not really anything I could do legally. There was no course of action available to me there.
0: The flyers seemed to have an immediate effect— Shortly after they were passed around, Cruz was no longer employed at La Diplomate. And something else happened because of the flyers. Women who had worked with Cruz in restaurants around D.C., they started coming forward.
2: Two women have told us that they worked with Cruz in Vidalia and that they were mistreated by him sexually in the workplace, that they were groped by him, you know, touched without their consent.
0: One of the cooks at Vidalia said that she'd had consensual sex with Cruz outside of work and throughout her time at the restaurant. But she said that he would often also corner her in the storage room and grope her breasts or pressure her into having sex. She didn't tell anyone at the time. Another worker at Vidalia alleged that Cruz would even penetrate her with his fingers in the storage room. When she spoke to the Post, the woman asked to remain anonymous.
2: They felt like that they did not really have a choice in the interactions with him that were happening in the restaurant.
0: For the record, Vidalia's executive said that they were not aware of Cruz's pleas to the sex crimes. And they said that they were never told of any issues with Cruz's behavior towards women while he was working at the restaurant.
2: There is a third woman who has told us that she met him through a dating app and that He engaged in sexual contact with her when she was drunk and unable to give consent.
0: That woman, Emily Schimmel, said that she'd pass out in her bed and woke up to find herself without any clothes on and cruise naked with no memory of what had happened.
2: After the flyers come out, some of these women posted on social media, they learned that they are not the only ones. And they also
0: felt like they'd been failed by the legal system. None of the women knew that Cruz had a criminal past, including Emily Schimmel.
2: When she heard about these flyers, she just went to her car and cried for an hour because she felt like it should have never happened.
0: The Post also reached out to Cruz. He gave a one-paragraph statement saying that he thinks it's important for women to talk about sexual assault. But, quote, I do not believe the addition of my story at this time will help move the conversation forward. For the people I have hurt, I can only hope that they are able to find peace. There is no excusing my actions. I cannot take them back, but will continue to try and learn from my mistakes in hopes that I make up for the harm I have caused. Since then, Clark has made more progress in court. Because of her legal motion, the judge ultimately moved Cruz back to supervise probation. But she's still worried about the future.
3: All I did was tell the truth. And I did it to make myself to give myself a safe environment to live in. Did you feel better after doing it? Better is like such a relative term. Um, I felt better knowing I wasn't gonna see him walk past the salon. I felt better knowing that like I wasn't gonna again eat at a restaurant where he works without knowing it. Um, I felt better that people refused to accept this type of behavior and stood with me. But it wasn't like I just felt better.
0: Amy Britton is an investigative journalist for The Post. She worked with reporter Maura Judkis on this exhaustive investigation, which you can read in its entirety at WashingtonPost.com slash PostReports. In October 2013, politicians and bigwigs from around New York City gathered in the Bronx to celebrate the opening of a new golf course.
4: And we're joined this morning by Donald Trump, president and chairman of the Trump Organization.
0: The project was largely funded by the city, and the property would be operated by the Trump Organization. Then-Mayor Michael Bloomberg and then-real estate developer Donald Trump both spoke at the ceremony, heaping praise on each other. After all, they were old friends.
4: All of them, the funniest time, though, was when uh, you and I got on the subway together and he said, I take it every day. I'm not clear he does that. Uh, But if there's anybody that has changed this city, it is Donald Trump. He really has done an amazing thing, and this is another part of it. Donald, thank you for your confidence in the city.
5: Well, thank you very much, Mike. And I have to say, you have been a great mayor. Come here. You really have. I mean, this guy is fantastic. So on this October day, Donald Trump stood there with Michael Bloomberg, and they congratulated each other, and they lavished praise in each other, and they said they were both so wonderful for the city of New York. And it turned out this was the high point uh, in their relationship.
0: Michael Cranish is an investigative political reporter for The Post, and he's been reporting on the complicated relationship between two New York billionaires who could end up facing off as political opponents in the 2020 election.
5: They're both New York billionaires. They both named their companies after themselves. You'd think they'd have a lot in common, Uh, and to to a degree they do, but there's a lot they don't have in common. And in fact, Trump in 2001 supported the liberal Democrat in the mayor's race, Mark Green, instead of supporting Michael Bloomberg, the Republican. Well, Bloomberg won. So then he saw this was opportunistic. He said, now I need to be close to this mayor. Over the years, Donald Trump had made inroads to various mayor's office in New York. He needed tax breaks, this and that. At this point in time, he wasn't doing real development in New York. He was putting his name on buildings. He was branding himself around the world and making money from The Apprentice. So it was a little bit different, but he still wanted to be close to uh, Michael Bloomberg. So uh, over the years, they did events together. They went to charity golf courses together. And at one point, Donald Trump asked him to be on The Apprentice. So Michael Bloomberg met with contestants at Gracie Mansion, the official residence of the mayor in New York, giving them advice. And then again, in 2008, Bloomberg appeared on The Celebrity Apprentice. So he was actually on the show. Bloomberg was actually on the show twice, The Apprentice and then The Celebrity Apprentice, not as a contestant, so he couldn't get fired, but he was there as a guest. So Donald Trump introduced Bloomberg as a great leader, quote unquote, then in 2008, there's this extraordinary scene, and we actually went to a lot of effort to track down the videos because they're not that publicly available. You can't simply go on YouTube and see some of these things. So we did— So some of these scenes from The Apprentice. Right. Some of the scenes from The So I was able to see the scene from The Apprentice in 2004. And then in The Celebrity Apprentice in 2008, here Donald Trump and Michael Bloomberg are together. They're walking down a busy Manhattan street. <laughs> concept of that episode was the uh, hot dog wars between the contestants. Who could sell the most hot dogs? They had all these celebrities, quasi-celebrities. Mayor
1: Bloomberg and Donald Trump paid a visit. It was the highlight of this task for me.
4: But he's test it right. it's the number one francophile in this city. I'm supposed to see whether you guys can cut the mustard. All right, then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
5: sure this was just off the top of his head. but In the background, you can see Donald Trump and family members just beaming. So for both men, they get something out of this. Bloomer gets to seem human and Trump, he gets this legitimacy. He gets the mayor of New York to appear in a show. So a lot of people appear in a show, you know, are celebrities or people you never heard of. But you get the mayor of New York. I mean, that that lends some legitimacy to who he is.
0: So from your read of this, this is more opportunistic and not like a, a genuine friendship between them.
5: Uh, I think both people might describe it that way. I interviewed President Trump for this story. Now, it's not always so easy to get an interview with Donald Trump, but in this case, I had a hunch he might want to because Bloomberg's gotten under his skin to a degree, and it's easier for him to go after Bloomberg than it is to deal with Congress, for example. What he said, he said that they were very good friends. He thought, he said, I thought Michael liked me and I liked him, and they got along really well for about a decade. Then things changed. So it turned from a friendship into a serious rivalry Basically, according to President Trump, on the day that he made clear he was going to run for president. And at that point, all the niceties were put aside and they started bashing each other very bitterly. Trump basically used the golf course deal to say... I was able to get this golf course deal done and open the golf course in a way that the city could not. I did try over a course of a long number of weeks to talk to Bloomberg for this story, specifically to find out what he thought about the golf course deal we discussed and other matters. He just did not want to engage because his staff basically said they don't have a relationship and we don't want to talk about this. A colleague of mine did get a comment in a general way from Bloomberg a day or so ago, But uh, Bloomberg just did not want to sit for an interview on this topic. He certainly has not been hesitant to bash Donald Trump, but he hasn't wanted to talk about how they had a relationship and how, in fact, his administration gave Trump a significant deal on the golf course in the Bronx.
0: Once Donald Trump started running for president, the gloves came off. Bloomberg gave a speech at the 2016 Democratic National Convention.
4: Through his career, Donald Trump has left behind a well-documented record of bankruptcies and thousands of lawsuits and angry stockholders and contractors who feel cheated and disillusioned customers who feel they've been ripped off. Trump says he wants to run the nation like he's running his business? God help us. I'm a New Yorker. And I know a con when I see one.
5: Right after that, Donald Trump got on Twitter and he said, quote, Little Michael Bloomberg, he didn't have the guts to run for president. And his third term as mayor was a disaster. So the feud escalated, as you might imagine.
0: And the conflict between Trump and Bloomberg wasn't just a personal beef. Trump's campaign also revealed stark differences in their views on policy.
5: Gun control, Bloomberg has been big on gun control, and Donald Trump has been close to the NRA. Climate change, Bloomberg has been very out front in trying to lead efforts for climate change, and of course, now as president. As he said he would do during the campaign, he's dropped the global climate deal. So they did have some serious differences. Those were all shoved aside during the 10 years or so when they knew each other as Donald Trump, the developer, and Michael Bloomberg, the mayor.
0: And yet, for all of those differences... I think that they are really similar in a lot of ways, especially when you look at the fact that, you know, Bloomberg is someone who used to be a Republican and is now considering running for president as a Democrat. Trump supported this Democratic mayor who's running against Bloomberg and obviously is now embracing the Republican Party. You could say that they're both kind of billionaires who know how to recognize
5: a political opportunity. Exactly. They've both been chameleon-like in their politics. They've both been Democrats, Republicans, and independents. You know, Trump changed his party registration seven times. So his ideology basically has been what does he need to do to win? That's been a hallmark of his career. He was initially a liberal Democrat, and now he's a conservative Republican. Bloomberg has also changed significantly. He was a Democrat, then he was a Republican, Independent, and now he's a Democrat again. So, you know, he has quite changed, although not all of his policies are in line necessarily with Democratic orthodoxy.
0: What do you think the trajectory of these two people says about our current political landscape?
5: Well, Donald Trump showed that someone who is a billionaire could find a way to relate to a lot of people who are hurting, middle class, lower middle class. There is a history around the world of of leaders who are strong men, who might be very wealthy, finding a way to connect. And so whatever people think of Donald Trump, the reality is he won in part by connecting to these working class people across the country, in you know, small towns, all sorts of places. How Bloomberg might try to replicate that is a, is another challenge. He doesn't have the same perhaps relatability, it doesn't have the same kind of personality, but he was considered a pretty successful mayor of New York and the fact that he had elected three times. He was very popular and was able to connect with New Yorkers. Whether he could do that across the country is another question.
0: Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. Michael Cranish is a political investigative reporter at The Post. Before we go, one more thing from Post reporter Christopher Ingram. What it feels like in Red Lake Falls, Minnesota, during this week's polar vortex.
1: Okay, so I'm getting ready now to go check the mail. Because it's negative 35 at the moment, you basically need to suit up. You need your snow pants, you need your boots, your big thick jacket. You need everything because even the smallest bit of skin that stays exposed to temperatures like this, it just starts to hurt immediately so that first breath when you first step outside that's really a killer if you breathe in too deeply your lungs just kind of spaz out and you go into a coughing fit so I find it's usually best to breathe in through your nose Of course, when you do that, your nose hair is all freeze together and it feels kind of weird and uncomfortable, but you get used to it. When I first moved here from Baltimore, I wasn't used to this kind of cold. And I told myself that once the temperature hits below zero, it kind of all feels the same. 10 below is bitter cold, 20 below is also bitter cold, so therefore, they're both kind of the same temperature. But now I know that this way of thinking was very wrong. Since this polar vortex has caused the temperatures with wind chill to drop below 60, it's not bitter cold anymore. It's just pain. The cold goes away and all that's left is pain, this sharp, burning sensation. And then after a few minutes, the burning turns into a deep, dull ache that feels like it's radiating from your bones. Inside of our house, we now have a thick layer of ice growing on the interiors of our double-paned windows. And strange things happen with our doors, too. Sometimes the doorknobs freeze, sometimes the handles freeze. Sometimes they get frozen shut, and sometimes they get frozen open. When we open them up, So we're standing with the door to my living room open right now. There are billows of steam just pouring out of the house, and the cold air is rushing in. (sighs) And now we are back at the garage, and back inside, and the warmth.
0: Christopher Ingram is a data reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. If you like what you're hearing, rate and review us on your podcast app. And tell us what you think about today's episode on Twitter by using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.